Welcome to Control the Controllables. My name's Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Soto Grande, Spain. And I'm bringing you these podcasts. The aim is very clear to educate, to entertain and to energise the tennis community. Welcome to the next podcast. Welcome to episode 85 of Control the Controllables. Today, we have a former number six in the world, top 10 in the world in doubles as well, Wayne Ferreira. What a story. It's to listen to his journey, but he gets into the real detail of the players that he played against, how the game has changed or how it hasn't changed and also then how he's taken that into coaching he's now Francis Tiafoe's coach I did put on social media a question and he goes into all the detail of that Wayne Ferreira played against Bjorn Borg he also has a winning record against Roger Federer and that spans over the Borg McEnroe era the the Sampras Agassi the Edberg Becker the Federer Nadal, and to be able to, to do that over for such a long period is absolutely incredible. It was an honour to talk to him. It was a great chat. I know you're going to enjoy it, and I'm going to pass you over to Wayne Ferreira. So, Wayne Ferreira, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How's things? Yeah, great, Dan. Thanks. Uh, everything's going really, really well. Thank you. It's it's great to have you on. It really is. And just again, for those listening, anyone over the age of 25, you need no introduction at all. Uh, but unfortunately, some of those kids that have been on Netflix for the last 10 years might not have come across Wayne Ferreira. However, he was ATP singles high of number six. And it's very rare that we get someone on the podcast with single digits and also a top 10 doubles player. Uh, so, so many things that I want to go into, Wayne. But just to start with, I know we had some really sad news a couple of days ago. Someone I know was very close to you and very big in the world of tennis in, in South Africa, Gordon Forbes, passing away. Have you got a few yeah. words that you'd like to say about him? Yeah, it's really, really sad. I've known Gordon for a very, very long time. Uh, Gavin, his Gordon's son, is, uh, with IMG, has, has been my manager since uh, since I was 16. I've known him for over 30 years and spent a lot of time with Gordon, spoken a lot with him about his book. I know that recently, the last couple of years, he was in the process of writing another book. And, you know, it's just really disappointing for tennis, for for me for personally, but just for everybody. I mean, he was an amazing man, very smart, uh, so much fun to be around, great personality. It's it's, it's a real, it's really sad and, and it's going to be a, a tough loss for the tennis community. And when you mentioned his book, I've, I've heard nothing but good things about his book. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about, about his book? Yeah, it was a book. It was actually interesting back in the time. It'd be fun for kids today to read the book, to see the difference in the traveling and how they went around. But it's based around him and his travels with Abe Siegel, who was another very successful South African tennis player. They made, I think, the doubles final ones together back in Oh, way back when and you know it's a, it's a book about their stories about traveling uh, in the boats and trans staying in hotels right. and going from place to place and old school stuff but uh, very very well written very funny the stories that they had and, and the life that they led would be interesting for people who like tennis 
just to read the book to get an idea of sort of how it was back in the day and the love and, and the investment that, that people had back then to play the game. And how times have changed now, huh? Definitely, yeah. Get on a plane and fly. It's easy to go from place to place. Yeah, that, that's for sure. And, and with you, Wynn, I'm so tempted to just jump into Sampras, to Federer, to McEnroe, and all of these guys that obviously you've had so many battles with over the years. But what I'd really like to get to to start off with was how, how this passion and how this tennis thing that is a bug for so many of us started with you back in the day. Well, I've always been somebody who loved sport. I mean, I'm a kid growing up with a lot of energy. I mean, South Africa, we did a great job with the mixes of the different sports that you could do and all, all based out of school. So I did a lot of uh, badminton, squash, I played cricket, soccer, ran, swam a bit, you know, did pretty much everything that was available at school and I loved all of them. And, uh, you know, I think tennis was kind of got me because I liked the individual side of it all. And, and uh, I just enjoyed being out in the sun and I became a member at a club when I was younger and, and just ended up picking tennis out of all of them, but just loved doing sport, loved being outside and loved uh, just, you know, kind of playing. And, and as a kid, you know, you do everything. And, and I chose tennis in the end, which ended up being a good choice. And when you say you picked tennis, Wayne, what age was that? What age was that decision made? Yeah, at 13, I think I went to high school. And, you know, South Africa is weird. I loved soccer. Soccer was my favorite sport. And you do that in primary school. And then when you go to high school, you don't play soccer anymore. At school, you have to play at a club. And then you, you start playing rugby at school. And, and I didn't really want to play rugby. So my soccer kind of went away. I was still playing cricket at the time, which I really enjoyed and didn't really get along in my, my first year of high school with my coach at the school. And, he, and I lost a lot of interest in it. So I didn't really enjoy it. So I uh, ended up moving into squash and badminton. And, you know, in the end, tennis seemed to be the one that I enjoyed the most. And what about those rivalries? You know, it seems like that time there was a there was a few guys coming through from South Africa. So if memory serves me right, Marcus Andruska, uh, there was Grant Grant Stafford, yep, is it? Yep, that was coming yep. through as well. How how were those rivalries grown up and what what role did they play in kind of pushing you forward as well? Yeah, I mean, as a, as a really young junior, I wasn't really that good. It was ranked probably 10 to 12 in the 12s and 14s. Um, I did have a rivalry with Grant Stafford and uh, Clinton Marsh and uh, Victor Hendricks. Uh, Marcus Andruska was a little bit younger and wasn't really part of that group until later on. Um, but, you know, when I took it up at 13 and started investing a little bit more time and energy into it, you know, my ranking grew and I got a lot better. But at the beginning, you know, I took it, didn't take it that seriously. So I wasn't the best. It really, eight under eighteen was the first time um, in my well in, in in my junior career that I ended up becoming number one. Even in under sixteen, I funnily I saw a Facebook post the other day of our ranking system when I was back in the sixteens, and I think I was only ranked six six or seven in South oh, okay. Africa back at the time. So I got a lot better, you know, around sixteen, seventeen, um, and managed to you know improve a lot in that that space of time and became number one at, in my under eighteen year. On that one, Wayne, under 16, number six or seven in South Africa, which is probably not the powerhouse of world tennis at, at that stage as well. And you ended up being number six in the world. You know, yeah. is, is that possible nowadays? Or, or do you think that people are right to be stressing that they're not ranked so high when they're juniors nowadays? Has it changed? Well, I think it can to a certain degree. I mean, I took, I didn't take tennis very seriously. I played, 
up until like 13, I only played one or two or three hours a week. And then I, I was doing everything else. And then 13, I took it up a little bit more seriously and played a bit more tennis. Yeah. I think where I was a lot different from everybody else was back in the time we had mandatory military service. And I went into the Air Force when I was 16 years old. Okay. And that was the that was the first time that I sort of buckled down to kind of do what you would do at most of the academies where I ended up playing three, four hours of tennis a day and um, doing a lot of physical work and everything. And that's why I improved so, so considerably from 16 to 18, because I was actually putting in the time and energy. Uh, and it helped me a lot, but I also feel like it was beneficial for me that I, I was so enthusiastic to grow and to get a better, as a better tennis player, where, where today these kids are going into academies when they're eight, nine, 10. And then by the time they get to 16, they're all burnt out. So I think there is something to be said about, you know, not having to do too much too, too young, yep. enjoying the game and just having while you're doing it and then really invest in yourself when you get, First of all, when you develop physically and yep. uh, and you get stronger and, and then, you know, putting in the efforts later on. So, I mean, you know, everybody is different, you know, different have people, different people have different ways of going about things, but that seemed to work well for me. Yeah, because, I mean, we've had Dominic Kopfer on the on the podcast and it almost seems like nowadays his story is such an outlier. You know, he he talked about maybe only playing once or twice a week up until the ages of 15 or 16. He got very lucky to get a, a division one university in America to take him. He started on yeah. the team at number six and then here he is sitting at number 50 in the world, but it, yeah. do, it does seem like it's a lot more difficult to do that nowadays. And I, I don't know if it is possible. I mean, you know, I think I, there was a lot of things that I did as a kid. I played a lot of badminton, a lot of squash, uh, a lot of soccer. And uh, those things were all beneficial for tennis. Yeah. They all helped me grow as a tennis player. And even though I wasn't spending five, six hours on the court, I was still doing things that were beneficial for me and my growth. And, um, I, I think, you know, I'm a type of person, I think I don't, didn't really like to practice a lot. I would have had burnout if I had invested yeah. like some of the kids do. So for me, it worked well. For Dominic, it worked well. doesn't mean it worked well for everybody. Everybody is their own different person. But I do think that, uh, you know, you don't have to push it too young. I think, there's time. College is a great pathway for kids to go these days. There's a lot more. The high, the level of college has improved drastically. Um, you can go through the college years. You can you can grow then as a player. Um, so you don't need to rush it. It's time. And I did a little bit of research when before before our chat. There was a lot of things that didn't have to research when it came down to your tennis playing. But in terms of your junior days, and somebody mentioned to me about these super squads that you had in South Africa. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I have to say that I was I was very lucky. I was one of the last batch of South Africans to get the benefit of Tennis South Africa uh, allowing the super squads. You know, there were a bunch of us. I mean, I'll, get, I'll give you an unbelievable fact that when we went in, a lot of us went into the military at the same time. And there was a period there for a couple of years where we had 11 South Africans in the top 100 in the world in doubles. And almost all of them came from the super squads and the military years that we all went in together. So there's something to be said about having a core group of guys growing up together, playing together, traveling together. We had a great camaraderie. We spent a lot of time together. We were lucky. I mean, we were very, very lucky. You know, then after my time, there were guys like Neville Godwin, Wesley Whitehouse, Wesley Moody, yeah. you know, who, who managed to, who, who did relatively well, but on their own. And Kevin Anderson, you know, they did not have, they weren't lucky like us to have that uh, super squad. Um, so we were very, very fortunate. I mean, the timing for me was perfect. And um, I got a lot out of it. You know, I mean, I have a, a lot of 
great memories. I mean, you know, it, it, it was perfect for me. Yeah. Uh, if I had not been in that squad, if I had not had people pushing me like they did, I, I don't know if where how well I would have done. But I mean, for me, my path was actually, you know, was perfect. And it seems also like a lot of you South Africans from that that era are pretty tough. You know, I think I imagine you all are quite tough upbringings. There was a lot going on in South Africa at that time. What would you say to the kind of the mentality? And I asked this question to someone the other day. Is the mentality more of a, was it more of a Russian mentality or more of an American mentality, which I think are quite, are quite opposites? Yeah, I'd have to say more in the middle. I mean, I have to say our upbringing was amazing. I mean, we have a great standard of living in South Africa. Things are easy. It's a wonderful place. The weather's great. Yeah. Facilities are there. I mean, we have that. That's which is more like an American base. Um, yeah. But then I think we were we were maybe a little bit less spoiled than some of the Americans are in the sense that there was less opportunities. I mean, I remember traveling one year, one time going to Germany during the apartheid years and getting to a tournament and having all these protesters there and kicking us, not allowing us to play and kicking us out. So, I mean, you know, I think we're, we're pretty much in the middle. I would say we're more towards the American base in the sense that our, our life and our bringing is great in South Africa. But, I mean, you know, South Africans are hard workers. We work hard. We, yeah. we're, we're tough. You know, like uh, the, for me, I always have a lot of respect for the Australians. I think they're, they're you know, they fight. They're, they've got good men mentalities and they work hard. And the South Africans and Australians have that, you know, they, they're tough, tough, tough people. Yeah. And how influential were the coaches that you worked with during those times as well? Yeah, I mean, I think my development was great. I had a, a man who coached me. He was in his late 70s, Charlie Taylor. He was amazing. Uh, he, 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 he took me on when I was a kid and spent a lot of time on the development of the fundamentals, which for me, I think is so key. You know, when I coach now or I do any kind of tennis with kids or juniors or my son or, or Francis who I'm coaching now. I, I spend a lot of time and energy on the fundamentals because I believe it's the most important part of the growth of the tennis. The yeah. simpler you make the game, the simpler your, your, your shots are and, and the less mistakes or things you do, the easier it is. And he was amazing. Even though I had an unusual forehand and maybe a little bit of an unusual backhand, the fundamentals were developed well in me and it made life a lot easier. Um, so he was instrumental. And then when I started, you know, becoming part of the super squads, I was lucky because I, I traveled with a Christo Stein, who used to be a pro out on the tour back in the day. He was a great tennis player and a really nice man. Um, I spent, uh, you know, a lot of time with Keith Biprom, who was another mm -hmm. South African who was great, played back in the day with Cliff Drysdale in the 60s and 70s, who was also a great tennis player. And I just had, uh, luckily for me, had, People who had been out there on the tour, who had, uh, you know, the, the ideas of how, how it worked. And, and, you know, they were very instrumental in helping me develop my game. Yeah. And what did you, when you were a player, what was the kind of main attribute of a coach that you were looking for? Mm, that's a tough one. I mean, you know, when you're young, you don't really know. So you're just yeah. listening to them and taking everything that they say, you know, and you're going with what they say. I mean, you know, I, I listened well and I tried to learn and uh, whatever they were telling me, I tried to do. And, you know, I just, I gave them or the opportunity to, to tell me, I mean, they had been there and they had done it. And yeah, yeah. I, I never really second guessed anything that they said, um, which I think was helpful. And, and luckily they were great coaches. If I had been with somebody who maybe wasn't that good, uh, maybe I wouldn't have developed the right way. So yeah. I was fortunate. I mean, I had, I had good people around. Me. And how much of that have you now taken into your coaching now? 
Well, I mean, I'm, 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 you know, coaching Francis Tiafu at the moment. I've been doing that for this year, and uh, I like it because you know he's a little bit like that. He's open-minded. He's young. He's yeah. enthusiastic to learn. He he trusts me. Has respect for me and my game. And uh, you know, we can talk about things, and he never really doubts me. And you know, I think it, it it helps a lot to develop as a player if you have a coach that you don't trust that well, or you don't believe that they're saying the right things, and I think I think it becomes very hard to learn because if you don't trust them to listen and do what they say, this backlash is, is is very very detrimental. And how did the Francis thing come about? And is that is is you known Francis for a while, or did he just reach out out to you? No, they reached out. So I'd been on the tour for a bit. I was coaching Marin Cilic for yeah. for for a year, and I was around on the tour. And then I had interest to coach another another kid who. Uh, who Jared, Jared Donaldson, who was, was a thought, but unfortunately he's injured and he's been injured for two years. And through that discussion of, of, of wanting to maybe, maybe work with him, they have the same, Francis and Jared have the same manager. Then it, it came so luckily for me, it came that Francis was looking for somebody to add to his team and that. And, you know, so we discussed it and, and I've, I've been, I'm very, very lucky, very happy. I, I, I love the kid. He's a good, he's a good kid, good player. He's got a lot of potential. Um, you know, and it's a, it's a good job for me because I'm, I, I think I can be very helpful to him. So, and, and how's that been during COVID? Kind of a strange time to take on a play, I would imagine. Yeah, it was really bizarre because I went into a, uh, a trial period with him at Indian Wells and I was with right, him for okay. one week until we got cancelled. <laughs> so I'm like, does my trial period keep going or what? So we, he kept me on and we spent the next four and a half months just training. And actually right, it was okay. perfect because it gave us the time to be able to work on what I wanted fundamentals you know we made some changes to the forehand to the back end of the volley to the serve the footwork you know so we spent a lot on that and and we all know these things take time and and they're starting to develop in his game and he's starting to improve nicely you know so i think that time of covid was actually probably perfect for him to be able to spend that time to develop some yeah and have you are you spending all the weeks on the road with him how many weeks on the road will you do well, it's been a little bit difficult with, with COVID. There was quite a squash in there between the US Open, the French Open, and the indoors. So I have spent a lot of time with him. Uh, next year, obviously, we'll stretch it out. We actually don't even know what the schedule is next year. I mean, we kind of know what Australia is, but we don't know anything else yeah. after that. So, I mean, I'll travel with him as much as I can, but also, you know, need, need my time off as well. So we'll, we'll, see, we'll see what happens when the schedule comes up. And now need to move into, into you, the tennis player. And the first thing you as a tennis player, and I've got loads of memories kind of looking back, watching you when I was, when I was younger, Wayne, in, I know that you were voted as the iron man of the year on the tour one year. And that that's probably something that would describe you, you quite a lot. Tell, tell our listeners about what that award was for. Well, it's, it's, it was a nice award, but maybe not the right award to get in a way because it meant that I was traveling and playing a lot. I traveled to a lot of different countries. I covered a lot of space. I, I remember going from Sid, you know, Sydney to Tokyo to Europe to the US in, in like a four-week span. I mean, I, I played a lot of tournaments and I think maybe if I look back at it and I'd have been one of maybe the only mistakes that I made that I, I spent too much time traveling and playing too many okay. tournaments and maybe didn't focus as much as I should have on the Grand Slam. So even though it was a great award to get, it, it may have showed me if I, if I had done things differently that I should have played left less and focused more on the Grand Slams and try to, you know, I guess do, do better in them. My philosophy was to go and play and win. 
it didn't really matter what tournament was or where it was. I just wanted to win. But, uh, yeah. you know, I should have focused maybe a little bit more on the Grand Slams. But my first question to ask is Boris Becker, Stefan Edberg, Pete Sampras, Roger Federer, John McEnroe, and Bjorn Borg. What do they all have in common? What do they all have in common? Well, I mean, the only thing that I will say is that I've played all of them. Um, that's the one thing I would say. But other than that, have all in they were amazing tennis players. They all lost to Wayne Ferreira the last yep. time Wayne Ferreira played them. Oh, seriously, I didn't know that. All, all six of those. So as, as yeah. I was making my way through. And I was looking at and I was looking at results and I was saying, I wonder which direction we can go with this. I was like, no mm. way. He beat Federer the last time they played. No way. He beat McEnroe the last time they played. No way. Sampras, Edberg, yeah. Becker. And then I thought, you know what? Because what fascinated me about that win as well, that's three generations. You know, yeah. you, you think the Borg McEnroe era, you think the 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 Sampras Agassi era, and then you think the, obviously the Federer and Nadal era. So then I looked into it a little bit more playing Borg and you have to tell us about the Borg match. No. So what happened was he made a comeback in Monte Carlo the first year and he came back with the wooden racket and he ended up playing against uh, Olivia Delat. I thought, I think it was the okay. Frenchman and uh, came back with the wooden racket and <clears throat> got absolutely pulverized by Delat. He, he wasn't nice to him and he beat him really, really badly. And yeah. It was a little bit of a disappointment in that. And then he, I think he practiced and came. And then the following year, he came back with a Donna, but he came back with a new updated graphite version. And I played him first round in Monte Carlo, oh, okay. the second year. Uh, and I, you know, for me, what a thrill. I mean, he was my idol as a kid growing up. Uh, I could not have asked for a better situation to play against him. And it was, you know, what was nice about it too is that we had the same manager. So I actually became friends. And, Right. with him over the years i've had some dinners and spent time with him and you know what an amazing man as, as my idol I, I i picked a good one absolutely and then as you were were breaking into the top 100 i guess as you've, you've come through you've had a decent junior career you're breaking through into the top 100 i believe that happened relatively quick as well yeah i think my first my first year i, I finished 200 when i was still in the air force and then my first uh, year out, um, I finished in 50. And I think that may have been the year 92, possibly, that I ended up winning Queens. Uh, I won my first tournament, I believe, in Schenectady in New York and then, and then Queens. And that might have been the second year in. But, you know, that's the one thing people, I have a lot of people that come to me and say to me, you know, I have a kid who plays tennis. Like, you know, what should he do or how should he go about doing it? And is it difficult? And is it easy? <clears throat> and I always have to think to myself, it was easy. You know, I, I played qualities. I came through qualifying. I mean, played two satellites. I played a few challenges, um, played qualifying, so the big ones. And before I knew it, I was in the main draw. And I felt like it was relatively easy for me. And now that I've been involved in tennis with my son and juniors and, and pros on the tour, I, I realized it's not that easy. Yeah. And, you know, maybe in the time that I was doing it, it, it just felt like it. But uh, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I was fortunate. I, I managed to get through the qualifyings. I managed to get through that, that period where a lot of players falter in the 300 to 200 and then the 200 to 100 ranking where they, you know, to get the points to bump up to the next level. And, uh, you know, I don't know why. I can't really say what the reasons were, but uh, it just all seemed pretty easy for me. Do you, not to take 
anything at all away from what you've done, Wayne, in that era. Do you think it is more challenging now because of the pure number of players that they are? I, it's hard to say. I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, there's the same amount of tournaments. Uh, you know, the ranking system, I don't think is that many more people in it. I mean, uh, the style of tennis has changed. And I don't know if it makes it more difficult because of the style of tennis. I think, in my opinion, when I remember when I was, uh, you know, on the tour and, and, and when I retired on the tour, when I started helping out at Cal Berkeley and I was assistant volunteer at Cal Berkeley for the four years, I remember that the level, the number one, two, and three on the team were really, really good. But the, the, the you know, the six, seven, eight, nine of the teams, the, the level dropped off considerably. And yeah. um, now that I'm involved with my son at school and I'm volunteering at Vanderbilt and I'm around a lot of the tennis, I noticed that the level down the line is considerably better. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the five, six, seven, eight, nine of a team are relatively close to the one and two. And I think the difficulty is, is that with the style of tennis that we have today in regards to the power that people can generate from the rackets and the speed that comes off the racket, it allows everybody to be a lot closer in, this, in, in level. I, I'm not going to say skill level, I'm just going to say in level because people are able to get away with things a lot more. So I think there's a lot more people playing at a relatively same level and there's not the big jumps in levels that there used to be in, in my time. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And I think, uh, I think on that as well, if you have the level, then you tend to cut through rankings quite fast. And, and, well, it's, you know, I spoke to Roger Federer one time, you know, and it was interesting because when I was playing, you know, one stage there was only myself, Agassi and Alan Nowy were the only three over the age of 30 in the top 100. Right. Um, right. And then now there's, uh, I believe this year, there's 41, 41 over the age of 30 in the top 100. And I went to him one day and I said to him, you know, it's such a short time since I've retired to where we are today. Why all of a sudden are there so many older people in the draw and in the rankings and that? And he basically said that all the youngsters now with the way that tennis is with their power, they all learn to play the same way. There's no variation in their game. And uh, they all hit the ball the same way, play the same way and do the same thing. The older generation, because they play a little bit different, if they can beat that style of tennis, will always beat them. And he said, for me, the way that I play and my style is different. They don't know how to play me. I can play them. Therefore, I beat every single one. You beat one, you beat them all, is basically what he said. And he just said that the level is pretty much the same. And, you know, he said the older generation are able to do that. Over time, I think it will change because the younger generation will become of that generation of power that hit the ball really, yeah. really hard. And maybe that will change. But he said that, uh, you know, Everybody plays very much the same today. And again, if you beat one, you beat them all. So back in 2001, I believe you played Roger Federer four times, or maybe three, but you, you beat him more times than he beat you. Mm -hmm. So, so what are the secrets? Well, I mean, he was still young. I'll take that. I mean, he was definitely young at that stage. And, you know, I was really good friends with him. He, Peter Lundgren, who was coaching him at the time and, and Roger and I, we spent a lot of time together practicing and, and hanging out together. And it was very evident at the early stage in his career that he had a really good slice backhand. He played very similar to Steffi Graf back in the day when he had a yeah. great forehand, great serve, but a, a, only a slice backhand. 
and he used to get hurt a lot. And, you know, we spoke many times about him developing a topspin backhand. And he, he, when he came out, he did okay because of his ability, but struggled in that. And then over time, he had to work on developing a, a topspin backhand, which he's been doing over the years. And it's actually been improving year to year. Yep. So that was the key, you know, his back end was still relatively weak back then. And I played in a way that could exploit that. Uh, I, I used to run around and hurt him a lot on the back end side. And he realized young at a young age, he had to improve it. And he, and he did that. And that's what made him special was he, he, he improved his weaknesses. If you don't mind me sharing a really quick story, Wayne, as well. I was fortunate enough, a player that I was working with in the 2012 Australian Open, a lefty and he was he was asked to warm up Federer before the Nadal semi-final and as we walked on court with Roger and I knew Roger quite well from the junior years you know we were having a lovely chat such a humble guy and he just said look Dan all I want Liam to do is just rip forehands high to my backhand it's all I want that's all I want for 25 minutes yeah. And, he, and he stood there and he didn't slice one and he just hit and he hit and he hit and he hit and he hit. Now he lost that semi-final, but if we fast forward, I believe it was 2016 or 17 Australian Open final. Mm-hmm. He then beat Nadal. Oh, I might have been 18. Mm-hmm. He beat Nadal in the final. And all the commentators were talking about how Roger Federer has improved his backhand. Best five games of tennis when he was down three love in the fifth. Best five games of tennis I've ever seen anyone play those five yeah. games in the fifth set i mean it was incredible ridiculous and 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 you always thought to yourself why didn't he do that more often you know he he had a hard time with nadal and he had a hard time with Djokovic because his back end up the line was just yeah. not good enough i know he spent time practicing in that but he just never developed a good enough back end up the line to beat those guys on a regular basis and that those five games when he took that ball inside the baseline on the back end up the line was yeah. was 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 amazing Will we see him win another Grand Slam? Oh, tough one. Tough one. I mean, I still think that Wimbledon's really the only chance he has. Uh, yeah. How healthy he is coming back from the surgery uh, investment. Um, you know, there's a lot of tough guys these days. You know, they're developing new players. It's going to be tough. I mean, you say the same with Rafa and the French. I mean, I think Rafa has a better chance of winning the French next year than Rafa, and Roger has of winning Wimbledon. Yeah, no, that's that's for sure. When when I well, I've got you on. Look, a, a former world number six, this amazing tennis brain. I want to talk tennis, you know. And yep. and when it when it comes down to game styles, you know, one thing that's kind of come through again a little bit of looking into your results. It seemed like the Sampras's, the the players that kind of had a sort of bigger game rather than maybe the Agassiz and the Michael Changs and, and that type of game style seem to suit you more. Is that something that you always knew? Is that something you can give us a bit of insight on? Absolutely. I mean, there was a bit, big difference of styles back in our time. And I did much better against the big servers because I returned exceptionally well. And I also did much better against the big servers because generally a big server didn't return as well. And my serve was very good. I placed it well. Um, I got a lot of aces, but I didn't, I didn't hit it that hard. And um, my second serve was, was, was okay, but it wasn't the best second serve out there. And, you know, I, when I played against the Agassi Sampluses, you know, they got a lot of my first serves back and they sometimes hurt me on the second serve. They took it early and they were aggressive off it. I felt like I could get away with my serve 
a lot a lot easier with the guys who didn't return that well but i think the benefit and, and where i was really good was i returned really really well and and i was able to break a lot and um you know so style of tennis plays a huge part uh, you know today there isn't that much of it anymore it's a very one-dimensional a, game yeah. uh, the way that people play today maybe wouldn't have suited my game as much because there are no big servers and serving volleys anymore yeah well i always used to again i used to follow cricket and i know you mentioned you played cricket when i used to watch cricket i used to get really frustrated that they would say oh the bowlers are coming out to bat and they won't last they won't last five minutes and i used to think you're professional cricketers why the hell can't you learn how to bat you know and i suppose bringing that back into tennis you know why is it that you're almost either a great returner or a great server uh, can we not get someone who can do both? Um, well, yes, uh, Roger, uh, Rafa, Novak. I mean, they, you know, the ones who are yeah. the best in the world are good at, are good at it all. I mean, yeah. I mean Sampras didn't return great, but he didn't return badly. You know, he no. chipped the ball low. He, he got it down nice and low. He got a lot of returns back in play. Everyone that has been around has been able to do, you know, everything relatively well i mean i do agree that you know if you're tall you can serve well which means you know you may not move as well i mean so yeah. there's you know there's attributes to it but i mean you look at a guy like that you know team and medvedev today yeah. i mean a big i mean medvedev six five or six six what he is but he returns really well he moves unbelievably well and returns ridiculously well i mean yeah. you know in the finals again in the in the atp finals and into the year up until the finals against team he didn't miss one back end return the whole tournament that right yeah and he returned and he serves huge so you know there there are people who are able to do it and you know it's just it's just not that many i can't say that i served badly i didn't have a bad serve at all yeah. by any stretch of the means i had a good serve and yeah. i didn't have a big booming serve but my serve was a big weapon in my game yeah. my serve was my weapon and my my return was my weapon so i mean i feel like i was pretty solid all around and what do you see the big changes being i know you were you were a fantastic athlete when you played do you see what do you see the physical changes of the game over the last kind of 10 15 years it's very physical i mean the boys they're hitting the ball really really hard yeah you know, again, the style has changed. There's a lot less thought plan behind it, you know, where we had to, you know, really work shots and develop a slice short, come in to put the ball away. Today, it's a lot more slapping the ball around, which means that eight players are able to hit winners or make mistakes from anywhere in the court. So it becomes a very physical, the ball's coming through the air much quicker. You're able to get pace off a difficult ball. So the physical part is, is important. I mean, you know, and you can see it, the guys are working harder. In my time, we spent a lot of time working in running, hitting balls on the court and running. Today, there's a lot of time invested in the gym. Strength yeah. work is extremely important. Physical work, extremely important. It's becoming a lot more physical from the, that side of it than, than it was in our time. So if you were to give advice to a, a 13, 14-year-old up-and-coming, or a coach working with a 13, 14-year-old, where would you say the big focuses should go in their training definitely strength i think strength is key um but i think there's a lot more scientific background to it in regards to core base I and mean, there's a lot around the core there's a lot about you know developing yourself and e equally through the body making you know having no strength no weaknesses um you know like for example francis is a very strong guy but he's very stiff in the hips 
So there's a lot of work being done on mobilizing the hips to get a lot more, a lot more out of that from the, you know, the turning of when he goes through shots and the rotation of the ball. So obviously it does depend from person to person, but physical and we're spending a lot of time working off court in the, in the gym and, and, and doing running, I think is, is become a lot more important and is very, very valuable because again, if you can't move, you're not going to, you're not going to get to the ball. Yeah. Um, and then I think that plays a big part. And how much are you using, I guess, the scientists and the, the catapult information? And, and then if we start going into the data collection around the matches and match statistics, mm-hmm. you, as, you as a coach, how, how much is, are you taking that on board? Well, I, I don't do any of the physical side. Obviously, it's not my yeah. forte. I mean, yeah. I exercise people around him who develop him uh, looking at the body structure and what he needs to do and where he needs to improve on the fitness levels and all that kind of stuff. And he's doing a very, very good job on that. I actually personally have got really invested into this analytical analytics that have been now developed. I mean, every time he plays a match, I get information of what his opponents are doing and it's actually extremely uh, valuable. I mean, you can see so many ploys of players and what it is that they like and dislike and it plays a huge part i mean for me also it's been interesting because i've done a lot of analytics on on francis's game to try to figure out what he does well and what he does wrong and then trying to change it because i think the players looking through that know what a person does and doesn't do and then you can actually i mean it's interesting to watch because if you know what someone's doing that you see players running through there because they know exactly what the person's doing yeah. So I'm trying to get him to change the way that he plays so that he's not, uh, you know, he's not read like a book, like a lot of the players are. And, and, you know, the analytics helps a lot in the development and especially helps going into a match, knowing what you, what you can and can't do. And when, how often do you see some kind of analytics come through that actually goes against what your eye has seen? Or do you find that your, your, your mastery that you already have in the sport is picking that up and you're almost seeing the data and that's almost confirming what you know. A lot of the times I've been, I have to say, I've been pretty much right about, you know, the, the little poor things that people do, but yeah, it's also difficult because, you know, I'll go to Francis and I'll say, you know, at, at 40, 15 or 30, 40, uh, when you're serving, when the, when this opponent is serving to you, they're going to go 85% to your back end. So we, you know, when it's 30, 40, that's break point. Look, just look for it to go to your backhand side. And, and, and obviously it always works like that. As soon as the first 30, 40 that you get, the guy goes up the middle. Um, but as the match progresses, and those numbers come into play. And, yeah. and if you take it from a longevity standpoint, you play over five sets, the numbers that you see are the numbers that tell because they do have their traits and they do do what they do. And so if you just stick to the numbers, you, you, you will, you'll always come out ahead. And does he like to receive that that type of feedback before a match? He's interested to it and he likes it, but he's also somebody who likes to see it for himself. You know, again, he likes to see that one go out wide on break point and then he could say, okay, yes, you know, it's coming there. And he, he likes to see the traits for himself. But any little added information that he has in the back of his head, um, it, it always helps. Um, but he generally likes to, I mean, sometimes say make the mistakes himself to kind of see it on his own. Yeah. Uh, so I, th- I find it such an interesting discussion because I think it's quite polarizing. You know, we've had a lot of we've had a lot of people on the podcast, and I, I tend to have, have spoken to most players and coaches on this. Some are absolutely not. 
some are completely obsessed some in my opinion use data as a bit of a kind of confirmation bias so it's almost like yeah yeah see i was right i told you i was right you know and yeah. almost kind of manipulating the the data to do that but it's the sport of tennis seems to be behind in this in this field compared to a lot of other sports and i think it seems to be coming in thick and fast and i think the future of tennis coaching has to have this involved well, there's no question. I mean, again, you know, taking Francis, you know, he, he plays in, in patterns and, and I know what they are. And unfortunately, a lot of the other players know what they are. I mean, yeah. you can see it in just general, but if you look at the analytics, it shows it very clearly. So when you take someone like him, you have to break down the way that he thinks out there and change everything. I do think that they are extremely valuable. Like, can there be any more information out there to help you? I'm sure there can be. But tennis generally is a fairly simple game of hitting the ball across the net in certain ways that you hit the ball. I don't know how in depth. It's not like maybe a American football with all the different plays. It's it's fairly pretty much fairly simple. But you can pick and choose what you do. And you know, so we've we've I've looked at his analytics and we have spent a lot of time changing the way that he plays only because if I looked at the analytics beforehand and and I played him, I would love it because I'd know exactly where he's going and where I need to go. And, and for him to be a good tennis player, you need to change that. You can't have people know how you play and where you go. That's such a nice way that you you can tell that you're that you've got that tennis brain because you're 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 the first person that's mentioned it in the flip. You know the flip side of actually saying, well, I'm using it for my players so that they are not predictable. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think it's yeah. such a, a nice way to look at it. I mean, you have to because I'm trying to get him. My my job is to get him as good as he can be. I need yep. to see where his weaknesses are and I need to see where he can improve. Um, I have to do the best to make him the best that he can be. So he, it, it really comes down to really on him, really. I mean, playing an opponent is, is just one one different person every now and again. Um, but he goes out and plays every single day. So he's more important than, than you know, a different opponent every day. Absolutely. If you don't mind, Wayne, I want to just pull you back into your playing just to talk about some experiences and specifically the Olympic experience to start with. Yep. 1992, Barcelona, silver medalist in the, in the doubles. How, how was that experience? I mean, unexpected, to be honest with you. I mean, I didn't have any expectations of going in there to come even close to winning a medal. Um, you know, I lost first round in the in the singles to Mark Rosset, who made the, I think he got the silver in, in Barcelona that year. Yeah, he did. Or I maybe lost, gold. Like maybe gold, so, but I lost maybe. I lost first first round to him. And, um, you know, I, and I was enjoying them. I was enjoying, it was my first Olympics that I went to, and I was just enjoying the, the, the point of being there. You know, first of all, South Africa had been banned from um, the Olympic Games since, uh, I think, 32 right. years. It was the first time that we were actually back at the Olympics. Oh, so wow. it was a huge occasion from that perspective. And actually, our medal was the first medal in the 32 years. So there was, there was a lot for that too, though, which was quite instrumental. But, you know, I, again, had no expectations. We kind of just went through the, the draw, Pity and I, and we ended up beating some great players. I mean, I mean Ivan Isevich and Pripic, uh, Fana, Lavalia at that stage we were great players. I mean, we, we beat some good teams that were unexpected. And before you knew it, we were in that medal. And, you know, it just came. It came so quick and, and without, without even not even thinking about it, it was, it was weird. And did that, was there a noticeable change on your profile back in South Africa after that? 
Well, I think so, but I think I was doing well in singles at that stage, though. So obviously, everybody knew who I was, and there was. But I think the fact that it was the first medal, I think, was very good for the country. I mean, yeah. 32 years was a long time that we were out, so it was. Uh, you know, the Olympics that year was was well watched, and and you know, everyone was invested into it. Massive. And so, where'd you keep that silver medal? In the bank, <laughs> in the safe. <laughs> oh, do you? Do you? It's, I don't want it out there anywhere, so it's in the safe. Well done, well done. And then, and then, ninety-six Olympics. If memory serves me correct, played Andre Agassi, and yep. pretend in the quarterfinals, maybe. Yeah, quarterfinals, and actually served for the match against him. That's right. And 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 lost in the quarterfinals of the doubles with Ellis Ferreira against uh, the Woodies. Okay. So came close. Needed to win either one of those matches for another medal. So it was a little bit disappointing, but uh, came close. And wasn't Agassi a naughty boy in that match? Didn't something happen? Yeah, in that we. Match? I, it's one. It's one of those matches I've blanked. So I've, <laughs> I've moved on from that. So we can't talk about it. <laughs> you, you can, but it, you know, it was it was a match that he had actually been forfeited and, and disqualified in, and the umpire had actually disqualified him and and given me the match and. And then the referee came on and changed changed the umpire's mind. So one of those ones that hurt because I would have won a medal, <coughs> and you should have been disqualified for his behaviour. And you would have played Leander Pears in the semi-finals. Leander Pears to play Sergi Bruguera in the finals. So it would have, I mean, my opinion, I think I would have won the gold. But it's it is what it is. Can't go back. Yeah, and, and that's and how do you how do you deal with that? I guess just to touch on that because sport is full of disappointment i mean even you you at number six in the world who have had an incredible i can't tell you what an honor it is to speak to you wayne yet you haven't won much in in that in 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 the in the in the nicest possible way you've experienced losing almost every week how how do you deal with that well i mean it's an interesting thing question i have i've you know i've dealt a lot with kids in, in through the years and everything and you know the, the one thing that i tell them is is that you know i played for 16 years i played x amount of tennis tournaments a year i uh i won 15 tournaments so basically you know i don't know how many what percentages is but every every week i walk away as a loser and and you know in tennis you can't be a perfectionist and you can't ever win you have to try to find uh, you know you have to win more than you lose if you look at all of the players through their careers that have had a successful career you know the ones in my range you know if you win 60 percent of your matches that's a great career you know we looked at the other day like a songer pure, i mean guys who have had great careers you know 60 percent win ratio is, is a great career so you know you 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 can't win every time and you don't need to. You just have to win more than you lose. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the other one that I love on that win is Roger Federer has lost 46 or 47% of points he's ever played in tennis on the tennis court. Yeah, I mean, the one stat which was interesting that they came out with is the year that uh, Novak um, dominated the year and only lost three matches. And they had a look at his win-loss ratio and he was only winning 51.3 or 51.4% of points in a match. Yeah. Yeah. So it shows you that everything is relatively close. I've commentated on many matches where the person that has won has won less points. Yeah, yeah. And generally, even if they do win, they only win one or two or three more points. So it's a it's a very close game. You can't win all of them. You just say again, you have to just try to win more than you lose. Uh, yet, yet we can't seem to get 
our juniors or even our professionals to actually understand the sport that they're playing, you know, and one of my, one of my pet peeves as a coach is when a player misses a return or loses a break point and then comes off afterwards saying I had so many chances messed up on that break point. Whereas actually the, the break point conversion is average of 25% on the tour. So we, yeah. we, you need four break points to get, to get one break. And it's like, come on guys, let's know our sport. Yeah, I've been involved again now recently in the development of tennis uh, in the juniors and stuff. And I've noticed, you know, obviously I spent a lot of time with the kids and their parents and parents put too much of an emphasis on winning. Everything is about winning instead of instead of working on your child's development as a player to get better and be better as they can when they get older. They, they, they put the emphasis on winning and that's, that's a big problem. I mean, again, you can't win and you can't, you can't win all the break points. You can't win all the matches. You just have to you know, develop your game and again, try to win the right points at the right time. Um, you know, and that's the thing is I think people don't really realize that what you're talking about, that the numbers are so close in everything that in, in a match like that, that there's only one or two points here or there that make a difference. And when you reflect, Wayne, on your career, do you look back at it as a successful career? Oh, absolutely. No question. I mean, I would have done, like I said earlier, I would have done things differently, maybe to play less of the smaller tournaments and maybe focus more on the Grand Slams. Um, but I had, you know, 16 years of something that I loved to do. I enjoyed every minute of it. Um, I loved, you know, like being out there and playing and competing. So I have no regrets. Maybe to do better in the Grand Slams. I think... I think that would have been maybe more of a focus. I mean, I wish that I had maybe done a little bit better on those or put more energies into it. But no, I mean, I, I seriously don't. I mean, I, I, I competed you know, well and wherever I, wherever I was and did the best that I could. Um, no, I'm, I'm, I really don't have any regrets anywhere. I mean, you can always want more, right? But uh, I think I'm happy with what I got. I don't really want to take away with what I had. And, and so you should be. Then moving into fatherhood parenthood you've got got two boys i believe yep. i got two one 121 and 116 and they've gone along a tennis journey as well so so how how's that been well it's been amazing i mean i'm so glad that they actually are playing tennis uh, and involved in tennis because it's obviously my passion and you know they they seem to love it and enjoy it too so it's nice and you know, you know when i when i go and watch them play or or do do their whatever they do in tennis it's it's nice for me to be in, a, in some environment that i love and how how involved have you been in their tennis well my oldest son is playing uh, at college uh, in at vanderbilt on the tennis team and i've for the last two years have been the volunteer assistant um going and watching the matches and helping out and uh, my younger son is coaching tennis at a club um, and you know he's and i love going and watching him i'm actually learning from him on how to coach he's very good at understanding the game. He knows a lot about it and I'm learning a lot from him too. So it's, you know, they both, both are giving me a lot of joy. So I have one question. I've got a 10 year old boy, just turned 10 last week. He's showing signs of being a decent tennis player. What's, what's your advice to me as, as a tennis parent who's also heavily involved in tennis? Stay out of it. <laughs> Let your kid play on his own and don't be an overbearing parent. <clears throat> you see that too much, but no, I think, it's important to to make a kid have fun and enjoy himself at that particular age, learn the game, have fun around the game, not take it too seriously, but try to make sure that you spend the time working on the right fundamentals and, and the right parts of the games. 
um, but let them have the freedom to, you know, to, to love it and enjoy it and, and grow on their own. I mean, no, you know, parents put a lot of pressure on their kids and I think it can, I think it hurts them a lot. Sound advice. Wayne, I'm not going to take up any more of your time other than a quick fire round. Mm -hmm. um, but what a pleasure it is having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for, yeah, it's been so great, much for coming. Yeah, so, no so you're up for our quick fire round. Go for it. Three sets or five? Yeah, five. Can't take away tradition. For me, the four Grand Slams are supposed to be the pinnacle of the game. They're supposed to be different than everything else. Uh, they are for that particular reason. Um, so five sets. Forehand or backhand? Forehand. Serve or return? Serve. Your favorite match to be involved in? Well, I think my, my first one that I, that, I, that I was involved in, which gave me the greatest joy as a kid growing up, I mean, has to be the board match. And I mean, he was my idol. So that would have to be my best match. I mean, uh, and then my second one would have to be beating McEnroe in Australia. And yep. also an idol of mine, yep. Morgan McEnroe. So those two. And what about your favorite match to watch? I actually, I actually have to say that uh, I'm disappointed in the outcome of it. Um, I mean, I've watched obviously the Borg McEnroe from Wimbledon, but of recent, I mean, the one for me that was toughest one was watching the finals of Wimbledon, Djokovic, Federer, the first, first tiebreaker, fifth set tiebreaker, 12 all. Uh, that one was a heartbreaker. I mean, obviously, Roger is my friend and and I like him, and I wanted him to win so badly. So that one, that one was the toughest one to watch. If you were in the in the Keenan household that day, Wayne, it was exactly the same. We couldn't we couldn't sit still, and I promise you that television lasted about two seconds after after the final point. My wife just walked over to the telly and just turned it off. That was it. Nobody yeah. spoke for days. <clears throat> yeah, I think a lot of people were like that. <laughs> ATP Cup or Davis Cup? Oh, oh, Davis Cup. I'm so sad about it going where it's going. It's too bad. It's a real shame. It is. One rule change that you would have in tennis? I mean, the only one that I think, you know, uh, I, and to, to, to really in the pros, it doesn't really make a difference. But I think playing not, I don't think they should play lets on the surf. Yeah. Like they do in college tennis. Yep. It brings a little bit of excitement and some change. Um, other than that, I don't really see any other change that, that I can think of. And who should our next guest be on the podcast? Next, Roger Federer. You, uh, if you got the hookup, <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to work. I'll have to work on that one for you. This is a this is a rule we have, Wayne. Whoever you say, you then you then take the responsibility. Of... I have to do it for you. Of setting request, it up. I'll put, I'll put my request in now. <laughs> that was absolutely brilliant, Wayne. Thank you so much for coming You're on. You're welcome. A massive thank you to Wayne for his time. It was such a privilege to, to chat to him and the humility that he showed throughout the, the conversation just shows that once again... You can be number six in the world. You can beat all of these greats of the sport, but you can still be a good guy. Uh, yeah, and, and that comes through loud and clear with Wayne. I have to apologise. One of my questions was incorrect. Uh, I've been nailed on social media for this. I asked the question about what Bjorn Borg, John McEnroe, Boris Becker, Stefan Edberg, Pete Sampras, Roger Federer had in common with Wayne. 
And I thought the answer was that he beat them all the last time he played them. It's been pointed out to me that was incorrect. He only beat five of them the last time he played them. And he beat Pete Sampras six times. But Sampras managed to get him in a tight three-setter not long after Wayne had beaten him. So that was a little bit factually incorrect. I apologise for that. But hey, it's not a bad stat anyway, is it? Beating five guys, Borg, McEnroe, Becker, Edberg, um, Federer, and then also having six wins over Sampras. So I hope you forgive me for that. Uh, what did I take from the podcast? I took that he was a good guy. I, I like that. That came through loud and clear and that humility is certainly a value that he has. He downplayed certain situations. I took from what an amazing competitor he is. He, he showed genuine emotion. Talking about the 1996 quarterfinal with Andre Agassi. You know, you could see that that was still hurting him 24 years on. You know, these guys, the competitive spirit that they have. He thinks like a tennis player. I really liked that he uses statistics and data to actually not become predictable with his player. You know, we're often looking into how to beat certain players. And like he said, the common denominator for him is Francis Tiafoe. He's a part of every single match. You know, so his ability to really look at what Francis is doing and develop that, I thought that was a I thought that was a fantastic insight. And then, yeah, just the way that he talked tennis, you know, the way that you could tell he feels tennis and in terms of in terms of the patterns of the sport, in terms of the insights to how the game has changed, you know, from having lots of varied, varied game styles 15, 20 years ago to how the Roger Federer piece that he just slipped in there, the conversation with Roger Federer, and how Roger finds it pretty easy to beat these guys because if he can beat one of them, he can beat them all. I thought that was just such fantastic insight. Hope you guys enjoyed it. I certainly did. Thank you all for your support. Keep getting these podcasts out there, guys. For now, I'm Dan Kiernan, and we are Control the Controllables.